invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Again, it's good to see everyone out this evening. Good to be with family once more to be able to worship God together, study from His Word a little bit more, try to think more about what He would have us to do, how He would have us to act, how He would have us to be. And um, as we think about that and continue to think about that this evening, we're going to kind of be continuing some thoughts from this morning. This morning, you remember, we, we talked about the need and the commandment, the expectation from God that when one becomes a Christian, we become a member of a local congregation of a local church and we join with brethren uh, at a local setting. Now, we've discussed that pattern already and it is absolutely a pattern in the Bible to become a member at a local congregation. But again, now what? We, we have to be able to make that case, but I tell you, I think a lot of times we forget to have the conversations of what comes after. I like um, an example that one of the instructors at the preacher's training classes a few weeks ago used when he was talking about evangelism and converting people. He said, you have to remember they are an infant. Even if they're 25, even if they're 55, they're a babe in Christ. And you do not, when a baby's born, just after three weeks, leave him out on the sidewalk and let him fend for himself. Uh, it's called abuse and for good reason, or neglect and for good reason. And I think it's the same with people who become Christians, and even beyond that, they join themselves to a local congregation, but then they have no idea what the expectation is of being a member of a local congregation. They don't know what's the pattern. What does the Bible say of how we're supposed to be? And I'll, tell you, I'll go one step further. This isn't something that only the new convert must be concerned with. I think it's something that the local congregation needs to be aware of as well. Again, we shouldn't just be able to, to make the case for joining a local church. We need to be able to make the case for what to do after that and how to continually live. What that means. Because I think sometimes when you just leave it as, oh, well, you're a member now. What, what happens? People just, just come. People just think, all right, well, I've, I've arrived. As a Christian, you've never arrived. At least, at the very least, not until you get to heaven. And so there's a continual daily need to continue, uh, to, to consider rather, thinking about uh, how we are to continue to be, how we are to think about our brethren. We need to be on the same page. In fact, when I talk to people that I'm trying, uh, that I'm having evangelistic studies with, one of the things that I talk about, whether it's, it's a, a, a potential new convert or someone who was a Christian, maybe fell away for a while and is, is wanting to come back and repent, I say the same thing. We have to make sure we're on the same page because we just can't allow anybody in. And, and surely you understand that because we are, trying to, we are trying to please our Father. You just think about how many different scenarios that could come up if we don't consider this. Because what happens if a false teacher comes in because there were no questions asked? What happens when a man like Diotrephes comes in and is trying to you know, rule over a local congregation what, what do you do then? Well, we need to have answers for those kinds of things. And we need to have expectations already in place from the scriptures, from the pattern that we see throughout the scriptures that we can easily point to and say, this is wrong, or we're doing exactly what we should be doing. We're continuing the pattern. And so I just want to continue talking about this idea of being a member tonight and what the expectations are. And, and we're not going to start with uh, the, the individual. We're going to end with the individual because I really do want to continue that that notion of what the church needs to think of. You see Lakeside's logo up on the screen there. 
What is it that Lakeside, we should be thinking of when people are coming in and saying, I want to be a part of your group. I want to associate, join, cling to this group in the work here at Lakeside. Because we are supposed to be busy doing a work, aren't we? And so what is it that we're supposed to be thinking about? We have a responsibility here when someone comes and says, what do we do? I said Acts chapter 2. I meant Acts chapter 9 if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 9. We read this this morning. But I want to look at it, make a different point, a secondary point to this passage. In Acts chapter 9, in verse 26, after Saul has become a Christian, he immediately joins brethren. But then you go down to verse 26, he's been persecuted, and so he has to flee to Jerusalem. And it says when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he, and, and how uh, that he had talked to them, talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus, and he was with them. Now, as I said, we already read that this morning, and, and the point we were making was that he continually saw the need to join with the local brethren. In this case, when he got to Jerusalem, they rejected him. Now, were they wrong for being cautious? Was, was the brethren at Jerusalem wrong for at first making this choice? For, for saying, hey, uh, guys, you know, we can welcome this man in, but he, he has murdered family. He, he murdered Joe's brother over here not too long ago, but, you know, let's just allow him in. Was that wrong for them to have the conversation and say, absolutely not? Because this man was a murderer. He could have been a spy to a degree. And so at first, they shirk him. They shun him for a while, and I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. I think it would have been wrong had they stayed that way after Barnabas comes in and vouches for him. After they've talked with the apostles, and the apostles even say, no, this man, he is saved. That's when it would have been wrong. But it's not wrong to have the conversation, and that's the first point I want to make. It's not wrong to consider who is trying to come in among our midst, in our midst. If we have to judge those that are in our midst, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we should be able and we should be willing to consider the people that want to come in, whether it be for malicious purposes or for good purposes. We have to ascertain whether or not that this is for honest reasons. So they weren't just being mean-spirited because when Barnabas comes, a trustworthy voucher comes, they accept Paul without hesitation. And so... We need to come to grips with the fact that we are supposed to consider those who want to come in. If, if, if we learn anything from these passages, we need to be careful and cautious and vigilant that wolves not come in. Uh, over in Acts chapter 18, I think this is actually a common, this is really a common um, thing that was done, a common tradition that was done, especially in the first century. Acts chapter 18, this is talking about Apollos, but look at what it says in verse 27. He wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he, helped, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by that the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. What I really want to focus on is the fact that the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples. Why? So that way the disciples have an idea of who's coming into their midst. So that they have an idea of the kind of man Apollos is. Because if they're going to be worth... If they're going to do anything worth their salt, if they're going to do any work, they're going to make sure that this isn't just someone trying to, you know, spy out the family of God, not someone just trying to come in maliciously like a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so this, I think, was a common thing. We're even going to look in Acts chapter 15 in just a moment. But in Acts chapter 15, the same thing is done. When Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas go back to Antioch, they send Judas and Silas with them. 
as they send that letter, just, just to have a few other people who were there writing that letter down, that way ever, there were no questions. There's full, full transparency here. And, and I tell you, sometimes people get mad when you start asking them questions. Like, hey, 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 this is, this is none of your business. It absolutely is my business. You want to be a part of this family and you're not willing to share some information? You, you, there's, there's going to be times where hard questions have to be asked, maybe some uncomfortable questions. But I'll tell you one, one, mo- one of the most proudest moments I've ever had being in, in, a, in a group. It was while we were in Buckhorn, Mississippi. And there was a man who came in, and this was a man who was married to a woman when he was a member at Buckhorn. They divorced. He hadn't been there for years. He started coming back. We started having studies with him. And finally, I, I, towards the end when I was going to, uh, uh, you know, when, when he was asking me about what he needs to do to make things right, I told him, listen, I, I, you've told me many things, but you're going to have to be willing to answer the same questions and maybe some other uncomfortable questions to the men. Because we all need to know who you are. We need to know that there are no indiscrepancies here. And they know more about the marriage than I do. And you know what he did? He answered the questions. And you know what happened afterwards? There was a couple men, these are big brawny men here. There's a couple men that almost started crying just saying, I, I will just hug and kiss your neck right now just because of how happy I am that you have scripturally divorced because he had been remarried. And so we need to know those kinds of things. Are you actually abiding in the teaching of Christ or are you not? In fact, this, you, you, you would be this careful when it came to your blood relatives. Parents, when you start looking for a babysitter for your children, are you just going to pick someone off the side of the street? Are you just going to pick someone who's walking on the sidewalk and say, hey, I actually have to go out of town. Can you watch the kids for maybe 15 minutes? Can you watch the kids for maybe two days without any questions asked? (laughs) No, you're actually going to do a whole lot of research. You're going to go on a website that specifically gives you the information and the biographies of these individuals that are going to be looking after your children. And you put that much effort into it. Why? Because you're vigilant about who is going to be associating, who is going to be taking care of your children. And we need to be just as vigilant when it comes to the local church. We need to make sure that people aren't coming in with malicious intent. And, and that really brings us to the next point, which is we cannot associate with known enemies of Christ. Over in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Now, with how many passages that essentially say the same thing, but with Paul being so emphatically clear to the elders, the overseers of Ephesus, how much more clear could we get? Not only do we need to be vigilant, but we need to be so willing and prepared to reject those who are not abiding in the teaching of Christ. Over in 2 John, this is a passage that we are familiar with because we've been talking about it for the past few weeks. 2 John in verse 9, he says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. We are not allowed to welcome anyone who doesn't abide in his teaching. Not my teaching, not my traditions, but Christ's teaching. 
This is exactly what happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The reason that they are condemned in that point is because they had allowed, they were having fellowship with sin. They were having fellowship with wickedness, something that God had said was wrong and sinful. And in fact, it even had some cultural ramifications. This was something that wasn't even done among the Gentiles, Paul says. And he says, you, you're, you're arrogant and boasting about this. What are they doing? They are fellowshipping. They have a relationship, a close relationship with someone who is not abiding in the teaching. Because what does that mean to abide? You live in it. It's not just, I'm obeying in some of these categories, but over here, I'm not scripturally remarried. But you know what? We don't have to look at that. No, no. Someone who abides in the teaching is someone who is actually obeying fully Christ's commands. Now, again, I know that that's going to make some hard conversations sometimes because this is the pattern. But even though this is the pattern, people still try to do it their own way. You have people that say, you know, when, when looking at a, a member coming in, sometimes people will, will, instead of looking at Christ's standards and asking hard questions of, are, is, is, are you really abiding in the teaching? They look to other people and they say, well, he's, he's got a soul just like you and me. Granted, he does. And I, I fully am sympathetic about that. But so does everyone else here. And guess what? My preference is supposed to be given to them. My, my vigilance is on these people. All of you. Not an outsider. And I know that that's us and them language, but that's how the Bible talks. That there are enemies of Christ and you need to be vigilant against them. You need to make sure they don't come in because they will upset the faith of some. And they will try to tear the fellowship of the brethren. And they will try to break things up and be divisive and be factious. And so Paul says over and over again, like in Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, reject factious men. We need to be willing to do that and, and, and not use our own reasoning to get out of that. Sometimes I, I think when, when people have said that to me, you know, he's got a soul just like you and me. I understand that. But do you think Paul didn't understand that? And do you think that Paul didn't care? Paul cared, I think, more than anybody because you go to 2 Corinthians, it's very likely that in, in a passage of 2 Corinthians, he's talking about the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he possibly has repented and he says, don't continue to, to, to uh, you know, bring him down, lift him up because now he has repented. And so we need to be careful that we're not using our own standard but looking at Christ's standard. Sometimes people look at someone who wants to come in and instead of thinking first about the spiritual matters, they think about purely carnal matters. What does that sound like? Well, you know, this will grow our number. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's not a nice feeling thing. I'm not saying that that's not a good thing. But when that's the first thought, <laughs> there's a problem. That should never be our first thought, that this is going to grow our number. Yes, it will, but it will destroy the faithful number here. And do we really want to do that? Do we really, really want to invite the leaven in with how incredibly corrosive and invasive we know that is? So we need to be careful that we're not using any standard other than Christ's. So not only should we be rejecting those who disobey him, but on the other hand, we must accept those who do fit that standard. Not our own, again, but Christ's. Over in Acts chapter 15 in verse 6. Acts chapter 15 in verse 6 beginning. There was some issues between um, some, some brethren that, that there was things from the law of Moses that were starting to be taught to the Gentiles and people were kind of blending the old law with Christ's commandments that had been given to the New Testament Christians. So they're talking through some of these matters. Look at what is said though in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to hear, to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And so Peter brings to light some of the, or at least reminds them, some things they already know that happened in Acts chapters 10 and 11 with a man you remember named Cornelius and other Gentiles. And he reminds them that even the Gentiles have been saved. But particularly in verse 10, what does he say that they're trying, that, that, that they're doing to God? By adding some of these things, instead of just taking the gospel message, they're adding things to it. He says, you're putting God to the test by placing upon the disciples a yoke that God did not put on us. What, what is he saying? They were, you are putting God to the test ultimately by using a standard that God himself has not specified, but that you have specified. This is something that you are trying to add in, not God. This is something that you are forcing and specifying, but God has not. And, and every time we do that, we are sinning, we're breaking our relationship and our fellowship with God, but we're causing damage among the number here as well. You go back to 3 John. I should have told you to put a bookmark there. But in 3 John, in verse 10, he talks about Diotrephes. In verse 10, it says, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. He says, don't imitate what is evil. Don't imitate this kind of behavior. And what was Diotrephes doing? He, he was using his own standard. He was not thinking about God's. He was using his own that he had crafted. And so I think that there are ways that we do this. Maybe not as, maybe not as maliciously and maybe not, even, maybe not even fully aware of what we're doing. But, but we are just like Diotrephes when we use our own subjective standard instead of the one that Christ has given us. So what can that sound like? It sounds like someone who wants to come in and instead of saying, okay, do you abide in the teaching of Christ? What, do you, what, what are your thoughts on marriage, divorce, and remarriage? And asking maybe some difficult questions, but making sure that they answer scripturally. Instead of asking those kinds of questions, we look around and we say, you know, and this I don't think would ever be said here, but maybe someone looks at him and says, well, he doesn't make much money, so that's not really going to help the contribution here. So I don't think we should have that kind of person here. He's not really going to help financially. Or he's covered in tattoos. I don't think we want to have that kind of look at Lakeside. I don't think you want people to look in and see someone like this to come in. Now, I'm not saying that we, that, that we want to look, you know, like the world. But what's the standard here? Are we thinking first about, does this man fit Christ's teaching? Is he walking in it? Not, has he ever made mistakes in the past, but is he living in them or has he fixed those things? And so we, we make standards and make them, uh, we, we force them, put, put a yoke on others because we are forcing them instead of the standard God has given us. I think one way that we all saw this just a few years ago was with COVID. And I know that that kind of has become just the, the common illustration to use, but wow, how many times did fellowship become an issue with certain brethren because we got so strong in our opinions and started doing this? instead of pointing at the actual problem. <laughs> and so what do you think about COVID? Uh, no, we can't have him here. 
You, you would not believe what he said. Are we using our own standard or are we using Christ? And there are many more examples that we can use. And, and those, are, those are very basic examples. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You could go on and on and on. So what kind of questions should we ask? Well, while there's no template for this, there are several indications of what we should be focusing on. And the next point really won't, won't be an exhaustive list, but it, I think a helpful one of some things to think about as we look at more so the individual. What is the person promising when they say, I want to join with the local brethren here? Like Paul, I want to join with the local church here. And I want to be just as committed. What are you promising when you are saying, this is what, when you come and say, this is what I want to do? And as we look at this list, you're going to see these are some things to focus on. These are some things to ask. And first of all, I think one of the main things, one of the starting things is, are you going to be present? Now, I don't mean just, just, just present. There's a lot more that goes into this. And that's why I like the word assemble. We already talked about how the word church, it, a good synonym for that is assembly. But over in, in Hebrews, chapter 24, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, where he says, you consider how to stir one another up into love and good works, encouraging one another daily, not forsaking your own assembling together. And so you have several different commands there. And, and so when he says, don't forsake, don't neglect the assembly, there's a lot more than just, okay, just make sure you're there and check the box. <laughs> Being present is just the baseline. It goes so much further than that. You got to focus on encouraging the brethren while you're there. You got to focus on how to stir one another up. You have to focus on how to strengthen and build each other up. It's not just be there, sing a few songs, give a contribution, you're done. It is, you are present. And I, I, the way I, I've, I've always liked to look at this is when, when your wife comes up to you and says, I want, you to, I want you to be with me. Okay, that's fine. And then what do you do? You start playing a video game. Well, we're sitting right next to each other. But what does she mean? She doesn't just want you to be right next to her. She wants you to be here with me. Be present. Be in the moment. But I tell you, a lot of times, well, sometimes what you find are people, yes, they're physically in the pew, but where are their minds? They're, it's on Facebook. It's on Instagram, Twitter. Or they're not focusing on what they're doing. They're drawing pictures because they're just too bored to be here. You're, you're physically here, but are you really here? Is God going to accept that kind of worship? No, he's not. And so not only is it, are you going to make sure that you make this a priority, assembling together a priority, not vacation and not all these other things, but you're really going to focus on this. This is more important than double overtime. This is more important than a week with the buds going camping. This is more important than, you know, a free, uh, a whole free evening of golfing with, with the friends. You're making a priority to come and do something. And so are you willing to do that? If you are, that's a step in the right direction. If you're not, frankly, you're not ready to be a member. You're not ready to do the things that Christ has commanded us to do when he says that we need to be together and be together for a purpose. Not only does, should we ask if, if someone's willing to assemble, but you're promising that you will be of the same mind. And, and I, I mean this in a very specific way. Over in Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2 in verse 1 Philippians chapter 2 in verse 1 
Paul says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I, the way that you maintain the same love, be united in spirit and intent on one purpose, you do that by being of the same mind. And not just of the same subjective mind. Not just saying that we're all going to agree with the diatrophies. What is he saying when he says, be of the same mind? Well, I, <laughs> one of the things that always cracks me up when, when I'm having studies with people and, and I, we start going through some of the scriptures and they look at me and say, oh, you're just, you're just a part of that group that all thinks the same thing. I'm like, yeah, is that an insult? I mean, it's a compliment to me. Because you have a whole world of people out there that say, oh, there's one church, there's one way, except for all these different ways that we say are actually not going to be condemned, that are going to be okay, even though we are outwardly, outwardly speaking against this, you know what, we can't condemn that. It, it, it doesn't, there's a disconnect here. These people are speaking, constantly contradicting themselves. And so when someone says that to me, it's like, <laughs> thank you. Don't you want to be a part of a group like that? Not saying it's perfect. But this is Christ's desire, that we will be of the same mind. And, and, and in a couple of ways. One, in a, in having the same mind in servitude and humility. We, you can even look further on in Philippians chapter 2, but specifically in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We read this earlier, but in Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. Romans 12 and verse 16. or we read from this passage earlier, you could start in verse nine, we don't have enough time, but some of the things he just talks about, you love without hypocrisy, and you cling to what is good, be devoted to one another, not lagging behind in diligence, but skip down to verse 16, specifically, be of the same mind toward one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly, do not be wise in your own estimation. Why do you think he has to say in a couple different ways, don't, don't think that you're you know, all that when it comes to your own wisdom? Don't be haughty in your mind and don't focus you know, fully on your own wisdom. Make sure you're thinking about the wisdom of the scriptures. Why do you think he has to say a couple different things to say the same thing? Because humility has a big role when it comes to having the same mind. If we're going to have the same mind towards serving one another, what that's going to mean is we're all humble. Not just, well, he can afford to be humble, I can't. So I'm not going to be. <laughs> no. Every single one is not going to be haughty in their own eyes. Every single one is not going to be wise in their own estimation, but they are going to be humble in the same way toward one another. Humble enough to serve. I tell you, we love a passage like that, and we say, I'm all for it until, the t until push comes to shove and something happens that I don't really like. Now, I'm sorry, but there's no, you, I can't afford to be humble. Why? Because my preferences are under attack. I can't afford to be humble. I have to lean on my own wisdom. Why? Because what you think is stupid and what I think is right. <laughs> I know people don't outwardly say that a lot of the time, but that's what they mean. No, we don't act like that. Paul says you have the same mind towards one another so that you can serve one another. I, I, it's amazing how many times this notion of servitude comes up. Philippians chapter 2, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and onward. Several passages Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 about the notion of serving one another. But not only are we supposed to be of the same mind to serve one another, but we are supposed to be of the same mind so that we can better glorify God. Over in Romans 15, just a few pages over. Romans chapter 15 in verse 5. 
It says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we glorify God with one voice? Just go a verse prior in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now I know he's, he's kind of more referencing a lot of the Old Testament. But what is he talking about? The scriptures. How do you be of the same mind to glorify God? How do you be of the same mind in doctrine? How do you think all the same thing about Christ and about worship and about fellowship? How can we all think the same thing? Because we're all under the same command. We're all under the same commander. We're all under the same king. And so I'm not coming to conclusions. I'm not making decisions based on my subjective standards. I'm basing it on Christ's objective one. I'm basing it on Christ's command and decree because he's the king. I am not. I am just a humble, lowly subject. And that's all I'm willing to be. And so if we want to do what the church is supposed to do and be of the same mind toward one another, how do you do that? You look to what he has said and you stay there and you stick with it. I'll tell you, a lot of times when there, whenever problems come up in, in, a, in a local congregation and there's maybe bickering, there's bitterness, there's complaining, there's disputing, there's grumbling, and it just seems like it's never going to end. People look around and they say, how are we supposed to fix this? The same way that you fix everything else and that everyone has fixed any, every Christian has ever fixed anything since the first century, you go back to the scriptures. If you want to figure out how to be of the same mind, look at what Christ has said. If you want to figure out how to solve disputing and grumbling, look at what Christ said. If you want to figure out how to serve one another, look at what Christ told you to do. It's really that simple. Well, what do we do? I, I, I can't see it. <laughs> well, maybe move your, move your hand down and open your eyes. It's right in front of us. And so we are promising, if we are a member of a local congregation, that we are going to be of the same mind in servitude, in humility, in doctrine towards one another. But finally, we're promising to engage in the work of the church. And there are three main things that I want to, that I want to say here when it comes to engaging in the work of the church. In Acts chapter 6, if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 6. Speaking of how to solve issues when they arise in the church. Acts chapter 6, there was a dispute that arose within the church early, early on. And the Hellenistic Jews were, had an issue because their widows were being overlooked. And so they, there, there was a, a bit of, I guess, a bit of bitterness arising. But what do they do? They bring this up. They bring it to the forefront. In verse 3, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. What was the answer? It was... Okay, you choose from among you men that are full of the Holy Spirit. You choose from among you men that can deal with this and men that can help with this. These, here's one thing about these people. When they complained about something, they were willing to try and come up with a solution. What happens a lot of time is people just want to complain. And they have no solutions. 
And I, I mean, I, I think there's even enough scriptural authority to say if that's all you're doing, just complaining with no intent to solve anything, just shut your mouth because you're not helping anyone. What you're doing is helping the devil. What they did was they tried to fix a problem, they brought it up, and then they accepted the answer, even though maybe that was going to be a little bit hard because they're choosing men from among them. But guess what? They stepped up and they started fixing the problem. Now, am I doing this work? this kind of work within the church if I'm not willing to fill the needs I see at services. When there's a slot that's open for the Bible class coming up and in the next week we're going to get to the next month and there's still a slot that's open for a Bible class. Am I filling that need? Am I doing this work within the church if I'm leaving it undone and I constantly see it over and over and over again every time I come into the building another emptiness, another empty slot still empty. Am I doing the work within the church? Am I doing this work within the church if I'm complaining every time I go to, maybe I am going to fix or help with something for the congregation, but I'm just complaining and loud about it every single time. Are you doing the work then? No, no. What you're doing is tearing. You're, whatever good you could do, it's now nullified, it's void, and you're actually doing damage and so we need to be willing to, do, to engage in the work of the church within the group. Help one another. Serve one another, as we were talking about a moment ago. And not just say, I'm willing to do this, and then just come and be present. Never do anything else. I also think that, secondly, we need to be, we need to be mindful that we're not just engaging in the work of the church within us, but outside of the assembly, outside of the collective unit. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Oh, goodness. Well, this page ripped. That's unfortunate. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. It says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. What, what were they doing? They weren't just coming together for the assembly. They were constantly with one another. I made this point before, but how do you have all things in common with, with the brethren? Well, if you spend time with them. You're never going to have anything in common with someone if you are constantly trying to be away from them as much as possible. If you're constantly trying to find ways to be away from them as much as possible. And I, and I, think, I think it's crazy sometimes people complain about, well, oh, people just don't seem to be getting very close to me at church. Well, have you tried to invite people? Have anybody invited you? Yeah, they've invited me to restaurants, but I, I, don't, really, I don't really do that. I don't really like going out in public. Well... Listen, I, I get that. I get that maybe you're more of a hermit than other people. But people are trying to be with you. People are trying to develop that kind, cultivate that kind of closeness. And what are you doing? You're, you're rejecting that. So don't complain when you're rejecting the opportunities you have. Am I doing this work, trying to be together, doing the work outside of the assembly? If I'm at services every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, and every Wednesday evening, in fact, and I'm constantly asking, brethren, how are you doing? How's everything going? But it ends there. Hey, how has the week been? Has it been hard on you? You think it's going to be hard on you this next week? And that's nice to ask, but then never visit them. Never go and try to see if you can help out with that load, with that burden. Hey, I'm here for you. It's a beautiful thing to say. It's even more beautiful when you're actually there. And so are we just saying that in the moment when we're looking at our brethren on Sundays and Wednesdays or are we making it, are we fulfilling that promise and going and doing the deed, going and acting on that?
Am I doing this kind of work if I ask brethren how they're doing at services but never go out of my way during the week to check on them or help them? Over in James chapter 2, James is making a point about dead faith and how if you're not willing to be obedient to God, if you're not willing to work for him, then it is dead faith. And he uses an example in verses 15 and 16. Someone comes to you and says that they're hungry or that they're cold, and what do you do? Be warm and be filled. You slam the door in their face. Are they warmed? Are they filled? <laughs> you said very nice things. Oh, that you would actually do it. And I think that's a problem with us sometimes. We, we like to say all of the, the pleasantries, but are we acting on them? Finally, when you think about the work of the church, I think one of the first things that needs to come to mind is evangelism. It doesn't matter if you're a full-time evangelist like me. If you're a Christian, you've signed up to evangelize for life, period. That's our job. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, very quickly, 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 14, he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. If the church is the pillar and support of the truth, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be making that known in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And there are other passages we could go to, but Paul makes it abundantly clear in verse uh, 8 beginning. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is the mission of the church, that we are constantly focusing on evangelism. How are we doing in that? I tell you, a church that's not focused on evangelism, that is not alive for evangelism, is a dying church. That isn't focusing on it. It's dying. So am I, when thinking about that, am I leaving the teaching to others? Because, hey, we have a located preacher that's okay, that's great. And I appreciate that especially. <laughs> but, but are you preaching? Are you evangelizing the truth to those around you? Because frankly, I don't have the same opportunities you do with your coworkers, with your family members. Are you doing the job? Are you engaging or am I leaving it to other people? Or failing if that's what we're doing. Am, am I leaving the local evangelism to everybody else like the preacher, the people that I'm sitting next to, or am I participating in the defense of the gospel myself, like Paul talks about with the Philippians? And how, why is he able to look back so joyfully and lovingly on, on, their, on remembering them and remembering the fellowship that he had with them? Because they not only participated in the gospel, in the defense of the gospel by sending him support, but they were participating themselves by spreading the gospel. We can't just think that while, while the contribution does is participating in that evangelism. We can't just act like, that's it, I'm done, I'm good. It, that's commanded, first of all. And that's good that you're doing that. But you can't just say, I've put the money in, that's my evangelism for the week. If, a door, if God opens a door throughout the rest of the week and you say, well, I've already done my part, and you slam it shut, you're going to be held accountable for that in the end. And so this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a few things that I think we should be thinking about from a congregational standpoint and from an individual standpoint. Understand what being a member looks like and what it is. 
You are promising that you are going to be submissive and a servant like Christ. You are promising that you are going to abide in the teaching of Christ and that you already are, which means you've repented of everything that you're supposed to not be abiding in. It means you're going to have to answer some difficult questions, maybe uncomfortable questions. But isn't that what the gospel message is for everyone at the beginning? What happens? You are a sinner. And before God, you are worthy of death. You have broken a holy covenant and a holy command. You have a debt that you cannot repay. Every single person, regardless of who you are, has to deal with that fact. And it's uncomfortable. But then what does God say? You don't have to be left there. Because through my son, you can have salvation. If you are a Christian and maybe you have, you have done your part to a degree, you've, you've met those conditions at the beginning, but you stopped focusing on what it means to be a member. You stopped evangelizing yourself. You have stopped being a servant. You've stopped being of the same mind in any regard. You've stopped being present for that matter. You can correct that. It's not so hard and impossible for you to make the corrections in your life. And if you need the help of the brethren, please, this is, this is one of the reasons it's helpful to be a member of a local congregation because you have the encouragement of the brethren around you. And the love that they have for you, they would love nothing more than for things to be made right in your life. Use that because God wants you to use that. But if you are not a Christian, just remember everyone had to make that uncomfortable step forward. I'm a sinner. I am dead in my transgressions. There's no way I can myself. But I know who can. Are you willing to become a Christian? Meet every condition that he's given you. To, to repent of your sins, to confess, make a confession based on the, that, that belief. Be faithful till death. Be baptized for newness of life. Wash away your sins through his blood. And then keep making the next steps until we finally get to his throne in heaven. Are you willing to be a Christian? Are you willing to be a subject of the king and do everything he says? If you're willing to do that subject to the invitation by any means, please come forward. Let us know as we stand and as we sing.